Don't you guys love that we've basically just put all of our life into the hands of these machines that could at any moment break and do nothing for us? Right? We're like, let's build the foundation of our society on this, right? Oh, man, it's good. I love you guys. Thank you so much. Excited to be here this morning. Man, just a good time praising the Lord, right? It's a good time worshiping God and it is believing some great things. I, uh, I want to... I want to share something this morning, and I, and I believe for many of you it might, might stretch you, but we're going to pause a little bit in a way, but I guess in, in a way it ties into what we've been speaking on. We've been talking about Saul here at Banner Church and uh, really Israel and their time in the promised land. And uh, we, we've titled that series Anti-Hero, and, and we're pausing from that, but I just want to give you a premise of where, what we've seen is We've been seeing Israel as a people do battle against the other uh, Canaanite tribes and other invading tribes that were uh, in the area. And what's interesting is, you know, that this past week, if you follow the news, right, I, I woke up to the news that Israel had officially de declared war, which for my generation is, is somewhat new. It's not new for Israel. It's not new for the, uh, the area, of course, but... It's new for, uh, for our generation. And as the spiritual leader of this house, as the person who's seeking God and really aiming to direct us, I felt compelled that there is some teaching that I need to do here in this space to talk about what is happening in a grander scale to get it off of Instagram posts, to get it out of just yard sign slogans, and to really teach about what is happening, not only in Israel, but what has been happening since really the beginning of time. And I've had a lot of these conversations. I, I remember a young man that, that we mentored. I mean, he was Palestinian. His mom was, e, or his father was Egyptian. Like, there were many conversations we had surrounding what is currently happening in Israel. And so I felt really compelled because uh, there, if, if you haven't turned on the news, and you might not be aware, but I, I really deeply hope you are aware that there is a lot happening right now in the area that you would call Israel or Palestine. There, are, there is a lot of death and suffering and things occurring. And so nothing I say today is to minimize any of that. But I think that we need to understand as believers how to respond, but to respond with wisdom, not just with emotion. We need to respond with truth and not just a repost. We need to know what is true and right. And, and so this is something that is very near and dear to my heart, the, the, the history and the state of the, the people of Israel. And as I share this morning, I want to talk about a few things, but it really stirred me this last week when I turned on the news and I saw the thousands of rockets that were sent into Israel. When I saw what happened in that small town and the, the, the people who were executed and, and Hamas going door to door, executing people, looking for the elderly and literally uh, killing people who survived the Holocaust to think that they made it all the way through the brutality of the Holocaust only to be brutally executed in their homes or to be taken as captives, the killing of, of women and babies and, and so much violence. Honestly, I think the most since the Yom Kippur Wars, it, it, it blew me 
away. And immediately what I saw was the media and our social media and people whipping it up into a frenzy. Right? It's like trying to beat the algorithm, trying to get as much of uh, visuals as possible. And what has happened is within this frenzy, it's kind of like who is ever first to grab the word genocide wins. Like never mind about what's actually happening, never mind historical conflict. It's like whoever throws these words out wins. And, I, and I've seen all kinds of responses. I've seen a response from one side to say, you know what, we should just bulldoze a whole area of people. Just wipe them off the map. That's justice. And I've seen a whole other group of people that are like, you know what, this is what they have coming. We don't denounce any kind of evil. We don't denounce any kind of suffering because we have a small-minded, a Western approach to oppressor and oppressed mindset. And it was heartbreaking for me because both of those groups of people were Christians. And as a church, I just got to say, I think we can do better. I think that we can do more because of the Holy Spirit. We can do more than anti-Semitism. We can do more than cheering for groups whose stated goal is the extermination of the Jews. How tragic is that? And so I, I've been speaking to many believers who are like, Pastor, what is happening? How do I respond to this? How do I go beyond the chanted slogans? How do I go beyond the engineered headlines? Are we actually living in the end times? How many of you have seen that pop through, right? Are we actually living? I mean, is this it? Is this really the end? Like, should we just, should I finally take all my money out of crypto that my wife has been saying to take out for months? Should I finally do that? Should I put money into it? Should I buy gold? Like, what's the word here? Should I buy nothing? Is this going to be the end? And so I, I want to tell you really clearly, this is not a new issue. But I believe that our, our response today in the modern age is unique. That there's a, a fresh response that we do as believers. This has been in the physical, this has been a, a conflict for a millennia. And in the spiritual, it's been a conflict for four millennia. It's more than a physical issue that we're witnessing today. Now it has profound physical implications that are deeply tragic, no matter what flag you carry. But there's a supernatural struggle that is occurring here that has to do with God's promise given way back at the beginning to Abraham. If you brought your Bible, would you do me a favor? Would you open up to Genesis, very first book, Genesis chapter 12. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry. The words are going to be on the screen. I'm going to pray for us before we read this together. Lord, we thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that your spirit is present here. Give us soft hearts to hear your word and to love others as Christ has loved us. In your name, amen. Okay, Genesis 12.1. If you're ready, say amen. amen. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, says the man who will later, his name changed to Abraham. It says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He said, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Do you see that fourfold promise? I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. So there's a present promise that God gives to Abraham, and there's a future promise. He says, I'm going to make you great. That's a present promise. And there's a future promise that says, I will bring a blessing to all the earth through your lineage. Are you still with me? Say amen. And so God takes Abraham to the land of Canaan, which is the land of Israel, and he promises him that land. And the promise was, through your line and through this land, I will bless the earth. And so from Abraham's line comes Isaac and then Jacob and so on and so forth. And I think this is important to remember because if you follow the news, you might be uh, determined to believe that Israel's relation to the land they are currently in began in 1948. But for the sake of all that is good in history, even if you're not a Bible believer here today, we cannot believe our, begin our thinking there. Israel's relationship to the land where this conflict is happening began three millennia ago. And, and what we also need to know is even from the beginning, when God says, look, Abraham, this is going to be your land, and your descendants will have this land, before there's a, a, a detachment of Abraham's a, a ascendants and, or descendants and a disagreement about who gets what, at the beginning, the agreed-upon Abrahamic promise was that he would receive this land. But from the beginning, the enemy has worked to keep Israel from the land. If you remember the Exodus series, we spoke in depth about how the enemy tried to keep Israel in Egypt under slavery, right? But eventually, around 1700 BC, give or take, Israel leaves Egypt and comes to the promised land. And the initial inhabitants, we just learned about Joshua. How many were here for the Joshua series, right? We learned about Joshua. The initial inhabitants of the land were Semitic people. They were Canaanites. At this moment, they were not an Arab people. This is a little history. Still with me? They were not an Arab people. They were Canaanite tribes. They were Semitic tribes. In fact, a lot of the conflict that was occurring in Egypt that led them to fled, flee is that the people of the lower Nile Delta were pushing out the Semitic people who had taken authority in the upper Nile, who had, who had come around where the temples are, and they were being pushed out back into the Canaanite lands. And the Hebrews are a Semitic people, but you already knew that. And so... The Arab presence at this time, 1700 BC, was still on the Arabian Peninsula. And what we saw in our Joshua series, and what we've seen through Saul, if you've been here, say amen, I've been here, yes, is that what we know from Scripture is that the Jewish people in the Promised Land did not have an easy go of it, right? There was never a moment where they're like, this is chill, this is easy. From the beginning, in the Promised Land, they suffered countless attacks, countless invasions, and countless conquerings. And as time goes, and post-King David, and within the kings that descends and the splitting of the kingdoms, we see an even greater invasion. And so the, the, the Israelites suffered in their lands invasion from the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Romans, and so on and so on and so forth. The story of this land has been people die here, right? People invade here. People take this land. 
And so a few things would happen. When people, when armies would come in, let's say you're the Assyrians, you'd come in and you'd take the land, you'd do something. You would take people and key people and you would take them back with you, right? And you would also leave people and those people were in charge of maintaining it. If you've ever read the book of Nehemiah, this is what it's all about, which is that the people of God who remain are working hard to build and the people of God who are taken are working hard to get back home, But it's important to realize when we read about Jesus, so let's go, let's jump all the way from 1700 BC to the time of Jesus. So let's go like zero, right? <laughs> or 30 BC, whatever, however, however you fall, depending on where what you like to align. Is that who's in charge of the, the area called Judea, which is, you know, modern day Israel. Who's in charge of Judea is the Judean authority. They're under Roman rule, but it is Judean leadership and Judean people and Jewish people occupying this land. And this is important because what has been tragic to witness and is a chronic mistelling of what's occurred is stating that this is a colonizer versus indigenous people issue. And that really breaks my heart because it's such a small-minded, like you saw Pocahontas one time, viewing of what has actually occurred. Because if it were true that this was a colonizer-colonized issue, then the people who were there in 1700 BC would be the, people, the indigenous people, correct? But what we see, even up to the times of the Romans and, and the end of the Roman Republic, you know, Jesus, right, post-Caesar, right? This is after Caesar. The still, the reigning authority in Israel is the Jews. The Maccabean revolts, the things that happen at this time, all are occurring around a space that is occupied by the Jewish people. And so when we say, well, it's, it's always been this way, that's simply not true. It has not always been this way. Now, that does not minimize what is happening, but I just think we need a reality check on history. It wasn't until the 7th century that everything changed. Because in the 7th century, you guys okay with history for a second? Okay, in the 7th century, what, it, what happened was, what was known as and is known as the Arab conquest. This is the dramatic spread of Islam. This is northern Africa, up into Europe, and Spain. I mean, over and over, there's like 450 battles that occurred, right? You might know the response to this and, and the involvement of this eventually ignited the Crusades, right? This is a massive spread. But Islam and, and the, the Arab army that came out of the, uh, the peninsula, the Arab peninsula, did something that the Babylonians didn't do and couldn't do, the Assyrians couldn't do and didn't do, the Romans couldn't do and didn't do. The Arabs did something that no one had done in that they took the land from the Jewish people. They literally brought in what are called military colonies with the stated goal, their stated goal, again, I'm not choosing this for them. The stated goal was the eradication of the Jewish people. And this changed everything in this land. Because for the first time, the Jews became an absolute minority on their land, and they are really, truly, for the first time, seventh century, right? They have to flee their land that they have been in since 1700 BC. If you're, if you're counting, that's two millennia of living somewhere. Okay? You're still with me here? Okay. 
I mean, some stayed, but most fled because eventually who took over was the Ottoman Empire. If you're a fan of history, you know the Ottoman Empire. And under the Ottoman Empire is really when this area became established as Palestine. And from about 1517 to 1918, the Jewish people were in basically a complete diaspora or a spreading, and they longed to return home. And one of the reasons they longed to return home, other than where where the fact that it was home, was the fact that where they were was full of rank anti-Semitism. Even if you read, this is a tragedy, but we got to own our tragedies, right? Even if you read Christian writers in that age, the consistent uh, heartbreak is that the stain of Europe was anti-Semitism. Even amongst Christians, they were supportive of people who wanted to kill the Jews. You say, well, we would never do that again. I don't know. We follow different people on social media then. Because even in Europe, Christian writers leading up to World War I wrote that anti-Semitism was a dark stain in Europe. Can I just make this note? If you're picking the sign that ad- advocates the eradication of Jews, I know it's really big for all my, for all my like, fellow millennials and Gen Zers to be on the right or wrong side of history. If you're picking the side that wants to eradicate Jews, that's the wrong side of history. Like just as a rule of thumb, wrong side. Now, that doesn't give license to commit atrocities on any side, but we just need to establish that as a principle. Did you know that multiple principles can be true at the same time? There we go. You guys are smarter than the people I follow on social media then. <laughs> need to make some changes, apparently. And so what happens is, in history, that the Ottoman Empire is destroyed. And when the Ottoman Empire is destroyed, the British Empire takes over that land and begins to occupy it. And in that, the Jews are are allowed to finally return. And this is often where the modern uh, rendition of the current conflict begins to take its deep, deep, deep shape. And I'm just giving you some history here. It is that in 1881, this is considered one of the big influxes of Jewish settlers to the area. And there's debate on what it was like when they got there. Yasser Arafat, how many of you know Yasser Arafat is, right? He said that Palestine was a fertile Levant until the Jewish invasion of 1881. But ironically, Mark Twain, when he was there in 1867, again, he's not a citizen of Israel. He's not an advocate. There there really was nothing there. He says this. He calls the land a desolate country. I'm just going to read from him. A desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given other wholly to weeds. It is a silent, mournful expanse a desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. So it's important to understand, if you're seeing things online about these people and this and ownership, that the world is not these chunky blocks of cities that have always existed. And at the time of 1881, at the time leading up to the the drawing near of the Jewish people and the return to their land, that that area was profoundly broken by generation upon generation upon generation of war. It was not a bustling metropolis. Are you still with me? 
Okay, that's important to understand. Arthur Stanley talks about, he says, when will the Jews return to restore this barren wasteland? And they did. The Jewish people began to return. They built infrastructure. And when there's infrastructure, they attracted, you know, immigration of all kinds of people, not only Jews, but of Arabs, right? From all over. When water systems begin to be rebuilt, if you live in the desert, you're going to go where there's water. That's a, that's a good idea. You should do that. You should draw near to those places. Also, both of your holy sites are involved there, correct? Both of them are, are, are set up of both Islam and Judaism. And so there is a drawing near that is occurring. And so in the drawing near of these two groups and in the influx of people coming into the land, both Jew and Arab who had not historically been there for the past 150, 200 years, they're reawakened the age-old issue, who owns the land, right? Who owns the land? Right? Is it the Jews who were there since 1700 BC who had lived there for thousands of years? Or is it the Arabs who had been there for hundreds of years? I mean, both people raised their families there, right? So there is an immediate Contact or conflict because the Jewish people claim, listen, this land was barren. We have not released our claim. We were, we were uh, kicked out by an empire. That empire is gone. We're coming back. And the Arabs said, listen, we've built families here, and we've had generations of existence here. We don't want to leave this place, even if you think it looks dumpy, or you believe it's your promised land. Are you with me? Can you maybe, even though we might be very different, get into the mindset of both peoples? Maybe as a father to say, I don't know if I want to leave my home that I've built for my family. And someone who's saying, I need a home for my family, right? Again, that's a slight simplification. But the question is, who owns the land? And it's the foundation of everything. If you turn on the news, that's the foundation of everything that you're seeing here. It's the reason the two-state solution that Israel accepted but Palestine rejected from Britain is the reason that fell through. Right? This question, who owns the land, it caused the formation of the Arab League. Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. Every country that surrounds Israel whose stated goal and still stated goal is the complete destruction of Israel. That's scary. Right? It's given rise to multiple wars, multiple intifadas, right? skirmishes and fights. It produced the PLO, and then it produced Hamas, and then the Hamas fought the PLO, and then Hamas uh, somehow got voted in as a terrorist organization to be in charge. It led to sanctions and blockades that restricted movement and resources in Gaza in 2004. It created the Iron Dome, right, to fight rockets being fired in at will at basically at anything. And finally, it's led to such an egregious terror attack that now they're under war again. Why do I say this? Because there's two things that we need to understand that are happening here so that we don't minimize something that is cosmically significant and reduce it down to something that can fit on a tweet. That is a bad sign. There's two things that are happening. One, this conflict is part of a greater struggle. On the individual level, what we see on TV is the brutal reality of people suffering. And that is what wrenches our hearts for every mother and father who lost a child, for every person who's suffering. I mean, that, this is heart-wrenching stuff. Well, th 
it, it wells up inside of us a sense of emotion, right? And in recognizing that, we also recognize that this is part of a larger struggle uh, between good and evil. When I say good and evil, I'm not saying Jews and Palestinians. I'm saying a, a struggle that has existed between the desires of God and the schemes of Satan. Do you remember when I mentioned Abraham and the promise? He said, right, this land will be for your offspring. Well, Abraham was not good at being patient. Anyone ever struggle with being patient? And so Abraham decided, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to take a concubine, right, from my wife, and I'm going to have a son with her. And that son's name was Ishmael. And from this line of Ishmael comes the lineage of which the Arabs and Islam have arisen. And so from this lineage comes the prophet Muhammad, right, from this line and from this uh, progression. Obviously, I only have so much time, so I can't define the entirety of the arising of Muhammad. So give me grace here, right? We can talk about that individually. But Muhammad comes as a false prophet. Muhammad is a false prophet. He is not from the Lord. Muhammad is from Satan. And he comes as a false prophet and says, no, no, no. We have claim to the land. And so in the 7th century, what do they do? They come through and they kill all the Jews. And those who they do not kill, they scatter. And like I said, in the 7th century, they bring in colonies to take over the land. But it's not just about land. This is about a dominion of Israel. If you're like, well, this is just about houses. That's not what the people who are actually involved in it believe. Muhammad did not believe that it was just about houses. Muhammad believed this was part of his God, Allah given command to take dominion of the land and to remove the Jewish people. And the Jewish people believe that God, Yahweh, the true God, has given them a command to inherit the land. Do you see how this is bigger? What does that have to do with Satan? Because Satan wanted and wants the children of God destroyed. Satan wants the children of God and wanted, since the beginning, since Abraham, the children of God destroyed. Why? Because they're the people of God, and the Messiah was going to come through them. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, look what Scripture says. It says, for you are a people, he's speaking to his people, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, out of everyone on the earth, I've chosen you to be my people. And it's from you, right, that the Savior is going to be brought forth, right? God is going to use his chosen people, his children, to not only bless his children, but what did he promise? Abraham, that he be a blessing to all people. So in John 42, he says, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. It comes through the Jewish people. And from the Jews, it was given to Gentiles like me. Jesus came because of the promise, and it came through the Jewish people. That's why we have an affinity to the Jewish people, even if they have not turned their heart to Christ. We long for that to happen. And what I love about Jesus is though he came to the Jews, he came to every person. That means that he came for the Jew, the Gentile. He came from the Muslim. He came from the Hamas, right? He came for, for somebody right now with an AK. He came, he came for those people that they would turn their hearts to him and know him. He came through the lineage of the Jews. Christ desires that none should perish, but that all would be saved and to turn from him. And he did that through the lineage of the Jewish people. And that is the battle that has been occurring is will the Jews 
Jewish people be annihilated by an ideology set up as a ministry of Satan that seeks to destroy them. And many human beings, innocent and non-innocent, have become pawns of that fight, but it is bigger than everything. And that's not to excuse like the innocent that are suffering from, from any side that does anything, but to recognize there is something bigger that's occurring here. And it's a tragedy that is so great. God sent his only son, right? It's like, they're not going to fix it. So not only is it part of something bigger, this conflict will in some way continue to the end of days. You following me here? This conflict will in some way continue to the end of days. We know uh, from prophecy in Scripture that this uh, conflict will continue basically till, till the end of the earth. And Scripture tells us that in the end times, Israel will be scattered and will be regathered. In Ezekiel, it talks about the Lord says, Behold, I'm going to take my people Israel from the nations, and I'm going to bring them back together in Ezekiel 37. And it also says specifically in Ezekiel that when they're gathered, they'll be invaded by other countries. And it mentions some specific nations. Let me read it to you. Ezekiel 38. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, said, Son of man, set your face towards Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I'll bring you out. And all your army and your horse and your horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them, with buckler and shield, wielding swords. He says, Persia, Cush, Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all its hoods, or with all its hordes, Beth to Garmar, uh, from the utmost part of the north with all its hordes, many people who are with you. And now, we don't have nations named that, Right? Right? There's no nation of Magog. So other than Persia, which seems pretty straightforward, right? The rest of them are confusing. And so there's a lot of debate on Magog, for example. Magog, we're known that, we know that they're descendants of Japheth. They said these are the people who are going to come from the north. And so some people say, well, maybe that's, uh, that's Russia or the area to the north. They'll say that's Russia. We, we, can't, we don't know. We just say somewhere in the north. Meshach and Tubal from Gomer is uh, often the area that we know now to be called Turkey. Persia is Iran. Uh, the harder ones to know are Kush. That's sometimes estimated in northern Sudan. Uh, and Put, which is, some, they you know, estimate that area is around Libya. We don't necessarily know. Here's what we know. That the Bible prophesies that when the people are gathered, there'll be an invasion and five armies will come in and there'll be an army from the north. Why do I say that? This isn't going to sound encouraging, but I want you to hear me say, like, it's always been rough, and it's only going to get rougher in some way. If you have you read Revelation, not a super encouraging book, right? <laughs> right? There's conflict. There's difficulty. And so as Christians, our faith, this is what I'm here to say, our faith does not rise and fall with whatever nation Right? It rises and falls. It doesn't rise and fall with what we're seeing in the news. We have a response. This conflict is greater than we see today. It has, be, it has been and it will be 
great. It, it has been in motion since the beginning of time. And we know that in some way it will continue until all of these end time prophecies take place and some really difficult things happen in Israel. There's going to be a great battle. There's all kinds of things. But the question is, as people who are witnessing, we didn't make the list, so we're obviously witnessing what's happening. How do we respond? Right? How do we respond to seeing the things that are tragic, brutal, awful, difficult, the wars, the things that would come against? How do we face these end time-esque events and deep human suffering? I don't know about you, but I just, I, I don't have it within me to just damn a whole group of people and celebrate a whole group of people and just say like, I don't care about your human suffering. I don't care what you're going through because I just don't have the time. I'm going to pick a side. I'm going to make a post and that's my thing. I, I can't do that right? Like, I can't just say, you know what? This, you know, there's some very clear claims I can make, but there's something bigger in responding that I'm not just going to say, you know what? I got to figure out whatever my Instagram post is, and then I'm going to whitewash it off for the day, and I'm going to move on to the next thing. There has to be a response. So what's our response? I'm going to go quick here. Luke 21 says this, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. This is Jesus speaking says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the city depart, and let not those who are out of the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that's written. It says, alas, for the women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, for theirs will be great distress on the earth and wrath against its people. It said, they'll fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all, all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there'll be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring seas and waves. It says people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what's coming on the world. Did you see that? People will faint with fear with foreboding of what's coming on the word for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It says, and then they'll see the son of man coming in a cloud of power and great glory. Look at verse 28. Is it up here, verse 28? Now when you see these things begin to take place, how are, are they taking place right now? In some way they must be, yes? How close to the end are we? We don't know, but they're taking place, yes? They're taking place in some way. Okay, so what do we do? When you see these things begin to take place, when you see them begin, not just when Jesus comes in the clouds, when you see them begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That's a very like, I would tell my son that. Hey, you're down, you're frustrated, you're discouraged, you're exhausted. Man, pick yourself up, straighten up, be ready. I love that statement for Jesus. When you see these things, and, and the things he lists are, are brutal things. When you see war, when you see famine, when you see men, women, children killed, when you see them, he says, straighten up and raise your head. What does that mean? It means get ready, be prepared, have a readiness within you. Let me put it another way, Matthew 24. He says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. See that you're not afraid, right? For this must take place, but it's not the end yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there'll be famines and earthquakes, but these are just the beginning of the birth pains. I love that Jesus says this. It's almost like he knew we were going to have social media, right? 
He says, listen, you're going to begin to see the end times. Church, we live in this time that is the end times. How long is it? I don't know. And if you go on YouTube and someone tells you, they're lying to you. Scripture says they don't know the time and date. But we know that things have come to pass, right? Was the gathering when Israel returned? I, I don't know. It seems like a good guess. It seems like a good eye. But here's what I do know. I know what God has told me to do. He said, raise up your head to the heavens. When you see these things, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Certainly don't fight amongst each other in the church. Don't tear each other down. Don't root for the deaths of others. Don't attack people. Don't become vile. Don't become bitter, right? Don't become mean and ruthless. He says, lift up your head. Look to me. Hey, let me tell you this. What is our response? Our response in this conflict is a deep recommitting of devotion to God. Here's my prayer. God, get us off of Instagram and get us on our knees before the cross. God, get us out of trying to find some yard sign slogan, some online slide we got to share, some random diatribe on the water cooler. God, get us on our knees before the cross in deep devotion. Oh, Lord, that this nation would be so uncomfortable that it would finally become biblical that we would allow this to stir our heart, that we wouldn't just, just trade images of dead bodies of children as if to stack our side in the positive, but that we would recognize that God's heart is for his people to come to know him. And we would say something needs to change. Listen, I'm not writing anybody off. And if you think I'm supporting a terrorist organization, I hope they get everything that's coming to them. But my point is that God cares for his children and justice will be his. And I believe that. But my my response, our response is to pray that we recognize great suffering that has and will occur, and we pray that we're sobered by the reality of the brokenness in this world instead of being drunk off of the fruit of the system of abundance we live in, but that we would be sobered by the reality of brokenness in this world, that we would not flee from the discomfort of human suffering. We would allow that suffering to stir our heart and lead us to the foot of the cross and submit even our tears to the Lord. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, let your reasonableness, church, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And it says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, meaning all that we can conceptualize as humans, will, regard, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. Church, it's time to pray. It's time to pray. What do we pray for? We pray for peace. Psalm 122 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that they may be secure. Peace within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I'll say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your good, the psalmist says. Though this is a cosmic battle of good and evil, there, there aren't just two groups, but there's a conflict occurring, and you, you must understand that the Jewish fight in their mind is the fight for the right to exist. Always has been and always will be. But I know within this fight are many different layers of people, Palestinian Christians, right? Our brothers in Christ who are in Palestine, who were afraid. Imagine being that group of people. It's the marginalized of the marginalized, right? There's 
innocent lives. There's also terrorists. There's also people who would cause evil. There's also people with dark intentions. There's many things involved. Listen, I refuse to support anyone who's for the extermination of people. I want peace. We want peace. We pray for peace. The second thing is we pray for leaders. I don't care if you like them. We got to pray for them. And if you follow any of our leaders, you know they need as much prayer as you got in the tank. Just as our government makes decisions I think are ridiculous and we suffer the consequences for them, did you know that there are people right now who are suffering the consequences of a government that they didn't vote for and decisions they didn't make? Right? You say, well, I shouldn't have suffered. I didn't vote for it. Yeah, yeah, same over here. There's still mothers and fathers who are trying to live their life and protect their children who did not vote for something but are suffering the consequences of bad government. This is why God tells us, or this is why the scripture tells us in 1 Timothy, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We need to pray for wisdom and clarity. Church, That we can't outsource this. This is for us. We need to pray for our leaders. Not pray that they would be uh, removed. Uh, well, you can pray that if you want. <laughs> Sometimes we pray that. Uh, but we pray for the wisdom and clarity of God. I don't care who's in there. May they be full of the Spirit of God. That's who we need. We don't need another person showing us their church. We need someone revealing to us Jesus Christ through their life. That's what we need. The other thing we do, and we're going to not like this one, is pray for our enemies. Jesus messed us up with this one, right? We were all on board till the pray for enemies thing. Put up with our enemies is one thing. Pray for them is crazy. Imagine praying for the people who are chanting for our death. You can pick whatever side you want. I'm not picking the side that's calling for my death rule of thumb. But then Jesus comes on and he goes, pray for them. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me, dude. Right? It's part of our faith. Matthew 5, 44 says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In times of conflict, our prayer is that those whose hearts are aligned against Christ would be turned towards Christ. And that means those people are the people who are in alignment against what we believe as believers. We say, God, would you turn their hearts to you? God, would you, would you take away any lies of the enemy that are upon them? Would you heal? Would you restore? Pray for enemies. Okay, you still with me? This is, this is it. Got two more. Pray for the salvation of Israel. One of my favorite prophecies for Israel is the turning of hearts of the Jewish people towards Jesus Christ. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so when they look on me, What does he say? Who's me? On him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Look at that. That the Jewish people would weep over Jesus Christ and recognize who he truly is. See, in, in this moment, this is my prayer. God, would you use this time to bring the children of God into the reality of Jesus Christ? Okay, final thing. Band, you're up here. Okay. So we pray for peace, we pray for leaders, we pray for our enemies, we pray for the salvation of Israel. You still with me? So last thing, we need to pray for a rapid spread of the gospel. See, when the early church suffered, 
they would gather together and they would pray fervently that the mission of God would continue. When Chinese Christians came under attack under Mao, you know what they did? They gathered in homes and they said, Lord, do not let this slow the spread of Christianity. That was their prayer. I, I, I still love reading about the churches in Iran, and especially right now, it's all up in the air, but one of their prayers has been, God, do not let what's happening slow the spread of the gospel. Right? Matthew 24 says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then, then the end will come. See, the answer to all of this is a true encounter with Jesus Christ, Right? I was watching this video of a Hezbollah fighter who discovered Jesus Christ and radically changed their position. I was watching um, one of the, the founders of Hamas, one of, his, uh, one of his children is actually a Christian, gave his life to Christ, and, and talks about the, the, the struggle and talks about these things. It talks about finding Jesus. How does that happen? That's not a human thing, right? That's Jesus. Right? How, wouldn't it be amazing if all, all the people who we'd say, their enemies list, that they came to know Jesus, they came to know him as their Lord and Savior? How does a Hamas soldier who's seen his family bombed and has the ideology of hate in his mind, how does he forgive? Only through Jesus. How does an Israeli who's lived in fear of death from rockets and nations surrounding them chanting their death, how do they embrace a Palestinian and say, I love you? because of an encounter with Jesus. We must fervently pray, fervently pray for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we must fervently believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes lives. Church, can I encourage you, let's not grab hold of talking points. Let's not grab hold of slogans. Let's see the bigger picture. Let's cling to the word of God and his promises, what he said from the beginning. Let's stand firm in the gospel that we know it's Jesus who can make a way. And let's fervently pray like we have never prayed before. That we would pray more than we would post. That in every emotion, we would go to the Lord in that space and submit it to him and say, God, we need you to move. And we would see the prayers of a church transform because of the power of God and begin to move in authority. Church, this should change us. When we see conflict, it should renew within us a deep devotion to prayer. God, we need you. God, we need you. God, we need you. How do we reply? How do we respond? How do we react? It's God, we need you. God, we need you. God, we need you to move. We need, we need you to move so that the, the arms are laid down and that children are protected. We need you to move so that families are restored. We need you to move so that peace is built. God, we need you to move in every way. We need you to move so that not only the body would be saved and the soul is lost, but that the soul would be saved through Jesus Christ. God, we need you to move. God, we need you to move because these things are coming against me, trying to, trying to turn us in to hateful people. But we see your children that you love. God, we need you to move and remove these hateful ideologies, these hateful things away. We need you to bring victory and justice against these hateful things in your name. God, we need you to move. Are you getting me, church? This is our response, God. We come before you. We need you to move. We pray and seek you. We commit to a deep devotion of prayer. Would you stand with me this morning?
Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? Can I just tell you I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit? I, I truly believe that those who do not value prayer and do not want the Holy Spirit are simply blind to the things that are happening in the world. Because if you open your eyes and you recognize the brokenness of the world and you see what's happening, then you go, Lord, there is no other way but by your Spirit. There is no other way but by your Spirit. And then there is no other desire I have than to come to you in prayer and to be in your presence and to see you move. So here's what I, here's what I want to end today. It's a little different. I've thought really about how to end this because this is more of a teaching. Sometimes we preach, sometimes we teach. Thank you for being patient in this teaching. But what's happening is tragic and we believe for victory for the will and plans of God. That's our prayer. So this morning, I want to enter into a posture of just seeking the Lord together, inviting the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're here today and that's a heart issue. You're saying, you know what? My heart has just been angry and calloused and furious. Maybe even like I've, been, I've almost felt manipulated by the things that I've been seeing. And I need to submit that to the Lord. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know, God, I, I just feel overwhelmed. And I need to lay that at your feet. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I'm going to commit with my heart and all my heart to be fervently in prayer. You know what, I have not been a prayer. I have not been somebody who goes to the Lord. But I'm going to commit before Jesus today to be a person of deep prayer, of seeking God. If that's you and you're here, in fact, I want to pray for you. And then our prayer team is going to come, our worship team is going to close us out this morning, and then we're going to be done. But if you're here and you're saying, Lord, we need you. As a church, we need you. As a nation, as a world, we need you. In this conflict, we need you. And so we as a church, we cannot control the world. We can just say what we're doing right here. We say, as Banner Church, we are deeply committed to prayer. God, to fall in love with prayer, to fall in love with seeking your face and trusting that you move. If you're one of those people here today, would you just lift your hand and say, God, help me lead me to just fall deeper in love with prayer, with a deeper devotion to you, with a deeper devotion to your word of seeking you. God, I've been, I've been looking more online than I have in the word even, but God, I'm just right here and I'm here to just be in your presence and say, God, I'm seeking you with everything. I'm giving you everything. Stir a deep devotion in this place. Let's pray together. God, I pray, stir a deep devotion in your church. Stir a deep devotion in this place that the desire for you would be above all things and that our heart for prayer would be above all things. When we begin to see the conflicts, when we begin to see the wars, that we would straighten up, that we would lift our head and we would look to the heavens. We would say, God, we're coming after you. We cannot control the things of the world, but we can control where our heart goes and our heart is brought to you, God. Our everything is brought to you. Our request is brought to you. Our desire is brought to you. Our petition is brought to you. And God, we pray you would bring about your justice, your will, your work, your hand in the name of Jesus. I pray that you would bring about what only you can do, God. Forgive us for believing that we are God in this scenario and can dictate it. We surrender it to you and we pray God a devotion. I pray your Holy Spirit upon this church like never before that there would be such a devotion to the Holy Spirit that wisdom would flow from this church. That wisdom and clarity would flow. That peace would flow out of you into the people around you. That love
love would flow out of the people around or out of you to the people around you God we pray Holy Spirit stir up a devotion to you a devotion to your word this morning in your church in Jesus mighty name thank you for listening to the banner church podcast we hope this message was impactful for you check the episode notes to visit our website follow us on social media and subscribe to our podcast we'll see you again next week